We have been looking at church history, and the wonderful thing about church history is we've tried to go chronologically, and oh, occasionally we'll go back and pick up something here or there. But where we were lately, we've studied uh, the Wesley brothers, John and Charles. We studied uh, uh, George Whitfield, not plural, just singular, my error on the, the slide. But uh, you, you might remember John Wesley, we spent several weeks on him. Uh, we referenced, though we didn't go into much detail, his, his uh, uh, brother Charles Wesley. And then, of course, we dealt with George Whitfield. And uh, George Whitfield was the preacher who came over from England that Ben Franklin had written about, if you remember from that lesson. He was one of the original Methodists, along with John and Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley wrote over 6,000 hymns. And he didn't start writing them till he was in his 30s. So I would expect that most everybody in here has got time to at least write a few hundred. Just <laughs> looking at you. Some of you, and these kids, 10, 15,000. There's no excuse, okay? Now, um, not that I want you singing them to me necessarily, but I'd like to hear a few of them. <clears throat> John Wesley, George Whitfield. Charles Wesley, these early Methodists were writing hymns. John wrote a few. Whitfield wrote a few. But Charles Wesley's the most prolific, whether it's, you know, Come Thou Almighty King, O for a Thousand Tongues to Sing. Or how about this one? This is his actual journal. It's in, I believe, the Rylands Library. This is his handwritten journal. This is one of his hymns. I'll pull out that first line. It's kind of hard to read, isn't it? Okay, hark. How all the Welkins ring. Hark, how all the Welkins ring. Welkins. That sounds like someone doesn't know how to greet you when you come in the door. Welkins. No, it's... <clears throat> Welkins is an old English word that refers to the, the, the cosmos, the heavens. Hark, how all the Welkins ring. Now, when, when he wrote this, he didn't, he didn't have the, the tune himself. Mendelssohn sort of kicked in a better tune in the 1800s. But this was written in the early se well, 1736 range, I believe, 1737. Published by the buddy Whitfield about 15 years later. But when Whitfield published it about 20 years later, he didn't like that lyric. He thought he could kick it up a notch, to borrow from Emerald. So what he did is uh, he changed that first lyric. Would you hit the first song for us, please, Mike? All right. Recognize it yet? Now you recognize it?
Now, <clears throat> kind of a vast improvement over Hark How All the Welkins Rings. Hark the Herald Angels Sing. But that is a hymn that was written in the 1700s. Now, I want you to compare it to the earliest Christian hymn that we have outside the Bible. The earliest Christian hymn we have. This is a hymn that was discovered in Ankarinkas, Egypt in the early 1900s. On, they, they, they discovered a bunch of papyri. Ankarinkas is is. Uh, inland. It's not a, a coastal town like Alexandria. It's inland. And they discovered a bunch of papyrus. Uh, papyri, I guess would be the plural. A uh, bunch of papyri. And, and one of the papyri fragments they have, labeled Onkirinkus 1786, because that was the, the number assigned to it, turns out to be a Christian song that dates from the 200s. And it's got musical notation on it that the Greeks used at the time to give you an idea not just of the melody, but of the rhythm. And there is a Greek student at the University of Sussex who, as part of his graduate studies, has gone back and actually rebuilt a kathara, which is the instrument to be played with it, and reconstructed the song melody in a recorded way. And so we have this earliest Christian hymn, and uh, we're going to play it for you. He's entitled it Hymn to the Holy Trinity, Trinity, which isn't the title it had. That's just his. Uh, um, I've tried to give us the, the Greek on the left and the English on the right. Let's read the English together. Then as we play it, maybe you can follow along and pick up some of the sounds. I'll try and help out with uh, follow the bouncing red dot. Um, as it goes along. But the, the English we've got, and understand we don't have the beginning of the hymn, so this is picking up somewhere without the start. Let it be silent. Let the shining stars not shine. Let the winds and noisy rivers be silent. And as we hymn or sing the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let all the powers add amen, amen. Praise always and glory to God, the sole giver of all goods. Okay? So would you play our second selection, please, Mike? He Now that's the difference between a hymn in the 200s and a hymn in the 1700s. And if you want to hear the difference between a hymn in the 1700s and a hymn today, go back to church. But I'd urge you just to hang in here for a little bit. Okay? Now, isn't that an interesting change? It's, how did the change come about? Was it just the British invasion? 
did, you know, did, did the equivalent of the Beatles enter into the church and change music as the way we sing it? No. It was a much more gradual change. And to understand it, I think one of the most important things we can do is first understand the uses of hymns. Now, I had a wonderful chance for Miss Hibbert to come down here last Sunday. And I don't mean to point you out and embarrass you, Miss Hibbert, but she came down here and she said, I love hymns because they help me memorize scripture. And Miss Hibbert is not the first to discover that. The hymns, music, help us remember not just scripture, but doctrine, liturgy, things. Uh, how many of you learn the books of the Bible by singing a song? Okay. If you ask me today where certain books of the Bible are, the song, sometimes it's the only way I can remember what order they're in. I can go back, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and I can go back through the song and I can do it when my brain's not functioning otherwise. Because I've got that song. The wise man built his house upon a... Do you know that because you remember the scripture or the song? The song. Um, I, if you want me to say the Apostles' Creed, I can say it. But I promise you in my brain, I've got the song going first. Because I can't say it well without the song. And so scripture was used to help the church. I mean, song was used to help the church memorize scripture, to memorize doctrine, to memorize liturgy. If you go back and think about the Dark Ages, the Dark Ages were a time of illiteracy. That's one of the principal reasons they're called dark. By the way, that's a joke on the PowerPoint. You're allowed to notice it. Illiterate, right for help. Okay, <clears throat> I, there's a big billboard I saw once that had it on there. Illiterate, right for help. I just remember driving by every day thinking, illiterate, right for help. Like you're going to read the sign and then write the letter? You know how? Anyway, the dark ages were a time of illiteracy. People could not read and they could not write by and large, except for a select few people, and 99% of the people who could read or write were the people who were uh, uh, the priests within the church and the monks in the monasteries. So how do the people learn Scripture if they can't read and write? How do the people learn doctrine if they can't read or write? How do the people commit to memory something when they can't read it in the first place? The answer, song. My kids, even down to the young ones, I have young kids that can sing every line to every Hannah Montana song. <laughs> Sarah, bless her heart, has asked me if Hannah Montana can come to her birthday party. And Rebecca has explained to her, no. And Sarah's response is, I didn't ask you, I asked dad. I'm sitting there, hey, go ask your mother. Um, yeah, and and our, our, our older kids, they can, they can say every line to, to so many songs, it's not even funny. But ask them to quote that much poetry. They got no shot. It's the song that makes it something that just seems to work in the brain. There are people who have had brain damage that can't talk, but they can sing. 
It's something within the brain that I don't understand, but it's a wonderful tool that God has used in his church. Now, that's one reason that the churches were big on song in the Middle Ages. Let me give you another reason. If you go back and think about the times of the Middle Ages, uh, um, you had little villages and you had little homes and a lot of grass huts and a lot of things like that, but there were not the big monstrosity buildings. And 90% of the people who lived in the Middle Ages, you know, it, it wasn't a big transportation time where you went to see the big cities and things. You born, lived, and died in one area. And for almost every person alive in the Middle Ages, the biggest building by far that they would ever see or step in was the church. And the churches were designed to captivate the attention. The architecture behind the church was designed where you walk in the back and you have these big vaulted ceilings that are to draw your attention to heaven. And there would be an altar up at the front of the church where the people would work their way and proceed their way through the various scenes to the altar. And in the altar there's usually an apse or something that's got the, the heavenly view with Christ. And you have these massive buildings compared to other things. But the microphone system really wasn't that great. And if you've ever stood in a massive cavernous building like that and tried to talk, you'll see that your words don't carry very well and they're hard to understand, especially when you've got such a high ceiling and you've got stone walls. Songs carry wonderfully well, though, in those churches. So as the, the choir would, would sit up at the front and actually face out, uh, not face the congregation as much as they would the priest, but as the, 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 the choirs would sing, the songs would carry much better than the spoken word in those buildings. And so you have uses of songs to teach the doctrine, to teach scripture, to help people have the tools that they need, and it's built into the church services itself. So the history of Christian music for over uh, a, a thousand years, for nearly 1,500 years, is really the history of the liturgy. How many of you have worshipped at a church where you are handed an order of worship when you go in? A lot of us. How many of you have actually gone to what I would consider a high church service, where you actually have either a prayer book or an order of worship that's set out uh, like the Episcopal church would or like the Catholic church would, that's a high church service or even a Lutheran church. Okay, a lot of you have as well. Um, liturgy is a word that we need to know to understand this, the word liturgy. Liturgy comes from the Greek word liturgia. Liturgia. You can see how liturgy comes from it. It's an anglicized version of that Greek word. In the Greek, liturgia was the duty or the responsibility or the service that a citizen had for the state. It might be to vote because you had that duty to vote. It might be to pay taxes. It might be to help pick up litter. But a duty that a citizen would perform for the state in common Greek was considered liturgia. Now, in the New Testament, the word is used. In the Greek New Testament, the word is used and it's translated as service. But it's service not for the state, it's service for God's kingdom. 
it's translated as ministry. You are ministering to God's kingdom with liturgia. With liturgia, it's translated worship. There are lots of Greek words for worship. Um, the one that most of us are probably familiar with is proskuneo, which means to take your nose and put it on the ground. It means to bow down or to be prostrate. But uh, 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 liturgia is also another word for worship. It's another word, uh, another translation is offering. Another translation is sacrifice. The idea is liturgia, liturgy, worship is something we do as citizens of God's kingdom. As citizens of God's kingdom, we gather together and we worship God. Does that make sense? Now, liturgy itself today is typically used of something that's much more fixed and rigid. It's an order of worship type thing. Our liturgy would be considered informal here compared to a, a, a typical liturgy that, that's going to have, you know, here's the song, here's the song, here's the prayer, here's the song. Uh, um, and, and how did that liturgy come about? We're going to look at a, a medieval liturgy in a moment. How did it come about? Well, you go back to the New Testament and you're going to see that it kind of grew in fixed forms. In the New Testament, we do see that there were certain rites or rituals that were set out already. We can go back and see Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper. And after they had, he took the bread, what did he do? He broke it and gave thanks and said, take, eat, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. And afterwards, in the same way, he took the cup, right? That is setting, Jesus set up something for us to do. A ritual, if you will, a rite, R-I-T-E, a rite, a ritual. He set up something that we call the Lord's Supper, our communion, our Eucharist from the Greek word. And, and, and the church did that. The church honored what he said. They did that in memory of him. You can read Paul in 1 Corinthians writing to the Corinthian church. You can read in Acts about Paul staying on for a service. And, the, and, and Paul would, would, would tell the Corinthians when he wrote to them. Here's what, it, when you have the Eucharist, when you have your feast, when you come together, don't confuse the agape feast with the communal elements and, and you, you, you need to treat this for what it is and you need to examine the body and you need to, you know, and, and we have that. And so from the earliest times, if we go into church history after that, we can see from um, the Didache, we can see from the early church fathers who wrote that, that in various churches, they would start developing a more rigid form of worship from the earliest of times. Does it, does, does it surprise anybody? Okay. doesn't surprise me. How many of you pray over meals? Good. Everybody. <clears throat> if you don't raise your hand, I didn't see it, then you're just shy. Because the odds are we all pray over our meals and thank God for this bread. In your prayer, have you ever heard the expression... Bless this food to the nourishment of our bodies. And our bodies to the nourishment of your kingdom. Ever heard any of that? Who wrote that one? Your, your daddy. No. Because my daddy's older than your daddy and my daddy said it first. We don't know who wrote it. 
How about this? Guide, guard, and direct us. You ever heard that in a prayer? Okay. Guide, guard, and direct us. Well, where do these institutions of our prayers come from? Someone, somewhere, somehow thought up to pray to God to bless this food to the nourishment of our bodies and our bodies to the nourishment of his kingdom. And when they prayed it, people who heard it thought enough about it where they started praying it too. And it just kind of spread and it just kind of grew. And it became almost an institutional part of a prayer for food. The church was no different. The church would find something, and, and much like Pastor Fleming talked this morning about the diversity that came into the church and, and, and how the church was an effort or, or a work of God to unite people in diversity. One of the easiest ways to unite people is to come up with common elements for them to do and to come up with something common. And so that's what was done. And so we can look now and we can actually look at a medieval Latin mass and we can see a worship that was basically set in place for over a thousand years of the church. And uh, uh, how many of you have ever been to a Catholic mass? <clears throat> okay, a good bit of you. How many of you understood what was going on? Okay, about 25% <clears throat> of the people that have gone. The Catholic mass... Uh, as done today, is still rooted in worship that's been done for over 1,500, 1,600, 1,700 years. We're able to go back and trace elements of it uh, back to the, the 100s even. Uh, it goes back very far. In a medieval mass, by the year 1,000, this is what a mass would look like. It was divided into three sections. Now, this is a typical mass. There are special masses for special days. There are special liturgical occurrences depending upon what you are going to. But generally, the first section is the introductory section. The introductory section would begin with an introit, which was a psalm that was sung by the choir. And the choir would be the people sitting in the chorister. They would sing this psalm. The psalm would vary depending upon what day it was and what season it was. After the introit, the psalm, when everybody says, okay, it's starting, it's time to get into church. You know, David said this morning that uh, we're moving church to 930, our service. It goes with this class. He said, some of you are saying, but we don't get in until 15 minutes after the 945 time. How's that going to work? Did you hear him say that? And what was his answer? Just move up 15 minutes at a time. You'll be getting in at 9.45 for a 9.30 start time. You'll feel right at home. Fit right in there. Okay, this was the introit. It's time for church to start. And this is the way the Mass would begin. It was followed by the Kyrie. You know the Kyrie, Kelly? Can you sing it for us if I give you a microphone? Okay. Um, <clears throat> the Kyrie is Latin of Greek. It's kind of a Latinized version of a Greek prayer because it predated the Latin church. The Kyrie is Kyrie eleison, Kyrie eleison, Kyrie eleison. Now, some of you are saying, wasn't there a Mr. Mr. song by that? Yes, there was, different Kyrie eleison. And then Christe eleison, Christe eleison, Christe eleison, Kyrie eleison, Kyrie eleison, Kyrie eleison. Here's what it means. Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy. Christ have mercy, Christ have mercy, Christ have mercy. Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy. Clearly, three sets of threes. Why? The Trinity. The Trinity. Okay? Now, I'm going to play you a version 
the, the Kyrie has been made into a number of different chants. It's one of the most popular chants of Gregorian chant history. And I'm going to play you an authentic version that dates back over a thousand years. And uh, this is what the Kyrie would sound like within the, this thousand year period of the church. Please, song three. <laughs> interesting at this time in the church they're not harmonizing there's all singing in unity and they all sing variations on these notes and on these scales if we were a, a beyond church history literacy and we were actually a church history or i mean a church history music class per se we could go into their historical uh, uh, scales that they would use they had very specific rules as to which which syllables they would get more than one note and which would not. And depending upon which type of chant it was, and, and, and that's much too much detail for us to get into. But, but I will tell you that they started toward um, uh, one point uh, more flowering on at the end. And it's real interesting, and, and we'll try and take time to do this next week if we've got a chance, but I'm not sure how we do time-wise. But, but you can see as they start to add a little flourish at the end, then they would start, and, and they always had the antiphony going back and forth with one group singing and another group responding. But then they'd start to sing, one singing one line and one singing another over it. And that's kind of the start of harmony. And then they'd take the flowering, the flourishing at the end, and they'd put some of that in the middle, and they'd have, and, and you can see these things developing. And it's not just the development of church music, it's the development of music. If you want to study music history for a thousand years, you're studying the history of the music of the church in Western civilization. It's like art history. You cannot study art history through the Middle Ages and the Renaissance without studying. Christian art history in, the, in Western tradition. Now, this song is still sung today in many churches. Um, I've got you a modern version that's been translated into English that has been sung in a church that I've attended. Would you play this for us, please? Oh, I 
service after service after service. And that was a way to teach people to seek God's mercy. It was a way to reinforce the Trinity. It was a doctrine and, and a concept and a theological premise. It's also a song of worship. And you sing that song and you think about what you're singing and you're speaking to God. And you are asking God, you are asking Christ for mercy. And how do you do that without reflecting on your life? And that's the role that it had within the church for thousands of years. This song goes back in, in a Greek form to the Coptic church, which broke off in like the 300s or 400s, that range. It goes back to, um, before that, the, the Orthodox, what we can now consider a Byzantine church. This is one of the oldest songs within the church. We don't know where the roots started. But coming before God, asking for mercy. So that's what we have. We have the introit. We have the Kyrie as the start of the service. This, the service then continues with the Gloria. Anybody out there named Gloria? This may be your song. Um, you will be familiar with the Gloria. In Latin, Gloria. In excelsis Deo. Et in terra pax hominibus, boni voluntatis, laudamus te, benedictimus te, or adoramus te, glorificamus te. It goes on and on. Let's do it in English. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men of goodwill. We praise you, we bless you, we adore you, we glorify you, we give thanks to you for your great glory. Lord God, heavenly King, God the Almighty Father, Lord only. Now, pause for a minute. This teaches pretty good doctrine, doesn't it? This is a pretty good way to get people who can't read and write to learn because it said every time they walk through the doors, it's sung. They get the song in their head. It doesn't get distracted by their iTunes that they listen to on their iPod during the week while they're jogging. They don't go home and it doesn't get drowned out by listening to the ball game on TV or radio. There's not another place where they get a lot of musical infusion. These are the songs they hear. These are the songs they learn. And these are the songs they sing during the week. And so they're singing during the week, Lord only, begotten Son, Jesus Christ, Lord God, Lamb of God, Son of God, the Father. Uh, you who take away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. You who take away the sins of the world, hear our prayer. You who sit at the right hand of the Father, have mercy on us. For you alone are holy. You alone are the Lord. You alone are the Most High, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit and the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen. Well, you start singing that all day, every day, and see how that changes your life. I mean, you may get numb to it for a while, but one day those lyrics are going to start to take effect. The Word of God, it, it doesn't go out without profit, does it? Can you imagine it just inundating yourself with this? All right. Introit, Kyrie, Gloria. And then there was the collect, which does not mean they passed the basket. Okay. <laughs> The collect was the collective prayer. This was an intoned prayer by the, the priest. He would pray the prayer for those who were there. After that section, that first section, they'd go to the second section, which was the liturgy or the, the service, the worship of the word. It would begin with an, the epistle, and that would be a reading from the Bible. 
that would be uh, intoned by the priest. So instead of just reading it the way David did this morning out of Ephesians, an epistle, he would have chanted it. I think we should bombard David with emails this week that we would like to hear him chant Ephesians next week. That is a joke. Do not do that, please. He will will shut me down, okay? (laughs) Um, uh, Actually, he could probably do it. He doesn't let you know this, but he has a really good voice. His wife's voice is even better. It's kind of like like Trammell down here. Trammell can sing, but his wife can really sing, okay? Um, uh, And uh, so, so I don't know how all of that works. But the priest would intone the epistle. And then there was a song called the gradual, and that would be a psalm, and it would vary depending upon what day it was and what service it was. And then the alleluia. Now, the the gradual and the alleluia are the musical high points of this service. I mean, they've got, sometimes it'd be the choir and the priest singing back and forth, but these are the big musical pieces. This is when the goosebumps come. You have come in to church You're in this awesome place that's unlike anything you would ever be in anywhere else. And in this awesome building with these people that that you understand are God's servants dedicated to God leading you. You have the, the, the Lord have mercy on us. Then you have the doctrinal gloria. And then you have the word being read after a prayer for you. And then you have these massive psalms, the gradual and the alleluia being sung. They are followed by the gospel reading. So that people would be getting a reading out of the epistles and a reading out of the gradual. How many of you have at least heard of this concept? See, I'm asking this question carefully. I'm not asking you to embarrass yourself. How many of you have heard of the concept of spending some daily time in the Bible? All of us. Isn't it nice to have a Bible we can read daily? We live in a most fortunate and blessed time. In a most fortunate and blessed country. David and I, or Stephen and I, were, were in a country where we, we heard a, a, a fellow speak the other day about the illiteracy rate of Guatemala. And it touches the heart to think about people who live in a land where they won't get to learn to read and write, much less have the word of God. But we have that. We have it so well, we take it for granted. We have that. But the people for the Middle Ages, they didn't. So this was their chance to get readings from the epistles, to get readings from the gospel. If there was going to be a sermon, which there were sometimes, sometimes not, it would be spoken. But you realize this is almost the first part of this entire service that's spoken. You'd then have the creed. Following that's the liturgy of the Eucharist, the third and final portion. The preface in the Eucharist would be, well, it starts with an offertory, which is not, again, passing the basket. It's an offering up of a psalm to God. That's followed by prayers and then the secret, which is something that the priest would do silently. Um, um, Then you have the preface. The preface is intoned. By that, you know, I mean, he, he kind of chants it, he, he intones it, but it would typically be a dialogue, a going back and forth between the priest and the choir. Um, it's followed by the Sanctus, followed by the consecration and the Lord's Prayer, and then uh, we've got the Agnus Dei, that's Lamb of God, right? Okay. 
And uh, you've got the communion psalm, communion itself and then the psalm. And then you've got the post-communion, which is an intoned prayer, followed by the ite missa est, which basically means see ya. Go, you are dismissed. By the way, missa is where the word mass comes from. Mass comes from the Latin for um, leaving. Uh, the idea being that you stay until the mass is over, then you leave. I remember it because that's kind of the mass exit. Okay. I was reaching to put some humor in this lesson. There's only so many puns you can make with Kyrie eleison. Um, so you've got the mass, you've got the exit. By the way, the first use of the word mass we get from St. Ambrose, who wrote hymns. Uh, the, the, the Bishop of Milan in the late 300s is where we first see the usage of the word, but he uses it in such an everyday way that it was clearly in use before that time. Now, where did all these things come from? Where did these songs come from? Well, we don't know exactly. Some come straight from Scripture. Others seem to be put together. We know that Pope Sylvester in the 300s started a singing school. Bishop of Rome, he started a singing school there. It died out shortly after he did. We know that Ambrose, the fellow I just referred to, also wrote a lot of hymns that were considered pretty contemporary, but they were so stable that they became part of the church. We can go, the fall of Rome happens in the 400s, and we enter into the Dark Ages in Western civilization. Gregory the Great is a pope during the Dark Ages. He's the pope that said, you all remember from, you were in here? Is if you sneeze... Bless you, because they were thinking maybe the sneeze was passing on the plague, and it was at least an early sign of the plague. And so if you're sneezing, lest you have the plague, he ordered that everyone say bless you as a prayer over the one sneezing. That Gregory the Great, if you remember, 590 to 604, big in singing, started singing schools. This is who Gregorian chants are named after. He didn't write them, but he gets the credit. Because he started the singing schools that really pushed that stuff. He goes and, and, and again, music just kind of dies out. Culture, civilization, it's just not moving anywhere except backwards. It's very stagnant during this time period in Western history. Charlemagne the Great becomes the Holy Roman Emperor in 768. Reigns for a long time. Tries to put culture back in life. So he wants to reestablish himself as truly a holy Roman emperor. He's going to reestablish the Western Empire of Rome. And that's what he tried to do. And one of the ways he tried to do it was by taking songs and bringing them back out. So he took Gregory the Great and put all these Gregory the Great singing schools all over the kingdom to try and get people singing Gregorian chants. One of them was a fella named Paolo Diacono who wrote a song, Hymn to John the Baptist. Now, you may be thinking, big deal. Well, it is, because Guido of Arezzo actually made a cover of that song 200 years later. Thank you. <laughs> We've got a few people with some music, catching some of these musical puns. So Guido of Arezzo covers Paolo Diacono's song. You want to hear it? Ah, sure, why not? Here you go. It's the Ut Kiant Loxus. Play it up. Sam. 
put that up there because they've got profound Christian lyrics that are going to move you in your life to start adoring John the Baptist. I put those up there because Guido used those to teach people how to sing. Guido's the one who really first started writing down songs with musical notation in much the form we use it. And he would teach his monks and students to sing by using a hand. And he used this song that they'd been singing for 200 years and assigned notes to his hand. So he'd have oot, re, mi, fa, so, la. Oot changes to do. Fa, so, la. And then we added ti, do a little bit later just to end up the thing. I want to play it for you again. See if you can, because the key is, see, they learned this song. He wasn't just taking the names. The only reason those names were important is the scale it starts on. It's like doe a deer, a female deer. Ray, a drop of golden sun. Each note, the oot, re, mi, fa, so, la, goes exactly in ascending order on the scale. So the priest who had memorized that song, all they had to do is remember oot. And if they read oot on a note, they'd know Oh, that's that note. Re, oh, that's the re note. Mi, oh, that's the mi note. Fa, so, la. And it works. So let's try it again. Play it again, Sam. <coughs> Uh, uh, and that's the way it had been for over 12, 1300 years when this uh, German monk decided he wanted to turn the church and its music upside down. <laughs> and so Luther did. And we will try and pick up there next week. Points for home. <clears throat> Worship God. Worship Him. That's our service. That's what we do. We're citizens of the kingdom. We serve the king. We sing to the king of kings. We worship the king of kings. Paul says, or not Paul, Jesus says, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. We call it the triumphal entry. Because even though he's going to die, in his death there is triumph over sin. Triumph for you and me. And Jesus is going in, and the people are singing praise to Jesus. They're throwing down palm branches. It's called Palm Sunday in church history. They're throwing down palm branches, and they're singing to him, Hosanna. Hosanna is Aramaic. It means, please save us. Please save us. There is no greater act of worship than to call upon the Savior for salvation. The people are singing out to Jesus. The Pharisees in the crowd get very miffed. How dare these people ask this man to save them? How dare the people call this man the king of Israel? Which they were also doing. So the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, would you please make the crowd shut up? 
This is embarrassing for you, and it's embarrassing to those of us with theological training. And Jesus' response was, oh, even if they were quiet, the rocks would start singing it. Because all creation, all creation, bears witness to the glory of God. Even the people who ignore him are fearfully and wonderfully made. And by the very fact that they exist, they bear worship and glory to God. They just don't realize it and live in rebellion. Live under the curse of sin. But we don't who know Jesus. So let's sing to our king. Next point. The Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, the liturgy of the Eucharist is a central focus for our fellowship and our time with God. It is a time where we come before God and seek his mercy. It is a time where we come before God and acknowledge what he has done for us. And it is a time where we join with Jesus at the table and partake of his body and partake of his blood through those elements. And it should be a central part of our worship. We have wonderful opportunities to do it in worship. But I thank God that we go to a church that also has a room right outside this door every Sunday for people who want to go and take the communal elements in the Lord's Supper. We've got deacons that serve it there. Use it. Recognize it. Make it part of your life. Find that time to commune with God. Final point. Songs do draw our hearts and minds in concert with others. It's one of the uniting things that Pastor David was talking about this morning. Doesn't matter what color we are. Doesn't matter how tall we are. Doesn't matter what age we are. We come together and sing praises to God Almighty. We have screens that, that were not cheap. That put the words up there. When it takes a hassle to put those words onto a screen. Why? So that we all sing together. Not so that those with good voices sing. So that we all sing together. You don't think you have a good voice? Doesn't matter. That's why those people up front have microphones. They drown out the rest of us. Just belt it out with all your worth to God. And know that your father in heaven basks in the joy of knowing that his children are doing their thing that he wants them to do. And worshiping and adoring him. And so we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in our hearts. But we sing them to God. Pray with me. Father, thank you so much for giving us the gift of song. Thank you for stirring in our spirits through song. Thank you for helping songs teach us and, and guide us and strengthen us and, and uh, take care of us. In so many ways, you use music to, to minister to us. And that is our prayer, Lord, that we will live lives that respond to you in service and adoration. You are our God. There is none other like you. There's none other like you. And we are touched that you love us as you do. We pray through our Savior. Jesus, have mercy upon us. Amen.